hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer no. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, Hello and welcome to episode 348 of The Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, proud 19-year young adult cancer survivor, broadcasting right now from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest support network for young adults affected by cancer online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the free podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, we're going to be speaking with Kimberly Jewett, two-time breast cancer survivor, patient advocate, activist, and liaison to pharma, the CEO and founder of Kimberly Jewett Consulting, and a special drop-in advocacy spotlight on founder and CEO of Keep Breast, the one and only Shaney Joe Darden. We're going to welcome back... Mr. Sean Shapiro from his uh, his uh, regalings in Southeast Asia. Hello, my friend. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. So Southeast Asia is a fairly large part of the world. Where were you specifically? I uh, spent most of my time there in Thailand and actually stepped foot in Laos for a hot 30 minutes. Is that how you pronounce it? You, the S is silent? Yeah. So it's not Laos. No. It's, it's Laos. Lao. But if you're American, I guess that's kind of what we say. Interesting. That's how they tell you apart. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's the Houston Street of measurement of tourism. Yep. Yep. So uh, what was your trip all about? I mean, you went personally vacation, but, you know, that's a cool part of the world. Yeah, it was fun. It was my first time in Asia, not the Middle East, so which is part of Asia. So um, it's not really your first time in Asia. No, but what we think is of as Asia. So it was fun. Um, rode elephants, fed them. Played with them. It was fun. Baby tigers. All that good stuff. I saw a picture of you holding a tiger. Yeah. Is that not, like, treacherous and dangerous? It might be. <laughs> They're like little puppies. Yeah, but don't they... They maul. <laughs> they, they? they grow up to eviscerate you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Who needs organs and, you know, arteries and stuff like that? Life in the fast lane, MZ. Did you meet people? Yeah. Stay in a hostel. Meet people that Did way. Did you meet a lot of Americans, or is it mostly all of the world people come to visit this place? There, there were a lot of British people, actually. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Interesting. A lot more people that know about stupid cancer now. I <laughs> went the whole country. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Super Thailand. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you meet Rambo by any chance while you were there? Was he in Thailand? The whole movie takes place in, like, Laos, right? Not Laos uh, and Thailand and Cambodia. I do not remember this. Yeah, in Vietnam. Okay. Yeah. The second Rambo. Gotcha. The first one took place in America. Because he's like, this is straight. Never, we're, we're, we're diverting. Anyway, hi, Kenny. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great, Matt. <laughs> Congratulations on landing your e-tail speaking engagement. That's a really yes. big deal. Yes, my first ever. Non-cancer, pseudo-stupid-cancer-ish. 
Oh, you're, it's you're, still awareness for us. You're kind of a big in the, deal in the corporate sector. What's your um, what's your topic? It's um, uh, what is it? It's building building products to drive the brand, something like that. And how does one do that? Uh, you'll have to attend Etel East to find out more. Oh, wonderful! No teasing there. No. And hi, Mel. Hi. How are you? I'm pretty dandy. Yeah. Yeah. How was your weekend? It was nice. Yeah. It, it was it it was a change. It was there a was, nice weekend. Yeah. The weather was good. There was some actual relaxing that happened, some fun exploring in Brooklyn, so good good things. Uh, Kenny uh, got to see my wife. We had a, a, a spotted owl sighting in Brooklyn where my, my wife wow. and I were like sans children, Yep. and uh, Kenny took the shot. Got a lot of pictures, a lot, a lot, a lot of likes on uh, Facebook there. Well, I am a broadcaster. Yes. <laughs> what? You're welcome. I have no idea. Yeah, my, we left my children with my uh, in-laws, and we had a, a an adult weekend of, of no children, which was nice. Which basically made going to sleep at like seven seven o'clock at night, which is what adults do that have children when they're not in the house. Wonderful. In any case, uh, I am uh, wanted to share. We we had a very active week on Facebook for some some reason. We're doing pretty well with engagement, but uh, one of the posts last week was about this girl who had melanoma because she tanned and she posted these photos of her pre and post as like a you know obviously don't tan um or don't be stupid and if you're going to tan do all the things you're supposed to do like you know sunscreen and wear a shirt and sunglasses and a hat and whatnot and it, like what a 350,000 people saw that post it's up there with those pictures of people before and after meth <laughs> exactly. the dermal version <laughs> No, it was it was impressive to see that people are passionate about this. Our community is like, I mean, I, I don't I'm not into like the anti tanning, like the sun exists and people live near beaches and it's part of society. Also, the sun does provide some good things. Yes, it does give you some vitamin D. Yes, <laughs> things yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, like you could be outside and the sun exists, but like to intentionally go to like a tanning salon I guess when I said tan responsibly, that means, like, don't go to a tanning salon. Go to a beach and be smart. Or just wear, like, 150-proof sunscreen. <laughs> I didn't. I saw this. like the, I, So I, when I was on my vacation with my wife and my kids, uh, in one of, the, um, one of the, the shops, the beach shops, there was SPF 150. That's what I need, actually. How, does that exist? Is, I mean, it do, it yeah. does. I've... It, it's not, they say anything above 70 doesn't really do anything else, but. I just find that exciting. Well, SPF, so there's like a, if anyone that remembers the RoboCop movie, there was a one of those like fake commercials in the RoboCop. It was called SPF 3000. Basically, you spread tar all over your body. The opposite of Kramer with the butter on. Exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, there was a caregiver story. Um, we're getting a lot of, uh, even still, month after CancerCon, it's been a month. Yeah. Back, back, almost a month since CancerCon. The next and one will be here soon. It will be here in approximately 11 months. Yeah. <laughs> people are still posting some really great blogs. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can hashtag CancerCon. We're following the tweets and on Instagram. But, yeah, people are still posting what it's been like to be there. Yes, which um, is exciting. It is exciting. It is exciting. And uh, we are joined. Uh, we have a special in-studio drop-in guest who is my technically my official, unofficial, official, unofficial co-host. But uh, welcoming back to the show, Shandy Joe Darden from Keep Abreast. Hello. Would you like an official introduction? Because I could play some really cool music again. Sure. All right. I'm going to play some really cool music because you know you you just deserve it. You work so hard. You need Aww. the underscoring. Don't get too you know, excited. Yeah, it, that's all it really is there. Shaney Joe Darden. After a close friend was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000, designer and artist Shaney Joe Darden founded the global nonprofit organization, the Kiva Breast Foundation, to raise awareness of breast cancer and to encourage prevention and early detection amongst young people. What's her name? Shaney Joe Darden. Kiva Breast <laughs> is celebrating its 15th anniversary. Am I saying it wrong? That's right. Yeah, you just said Shaney Joe Shaney Darden like Joe seven times. Yes, it, it, it comes, it rolls off the tongue really nicely. Anyway, she is a truly a leading voice in the cultural conversation about breast cancer. I don't know what you guys are doing right now, but Shaney Joe Darden, Shaney Joe Darden. It just sounds like a talk show host name. I don't know, oh. Shaney Joe Darden. It's a pretty fancy name. It is a good name <laughs> today on Shaney Joe. What is Darden? Is that German or something? 
know. You, you don't know your history? Well, my father's side of the family is Native American. My mother's side of the family, they're Irish. So Darden is something? Something. Interesting. Just American girl. Good old American girl. Are you like third California generation? girl. <laughs> Can you trace your roots back to like the boat and the potato famine and stuff? My dad did that once. Really? He like did our whole chart and figured out all the things. But It's creepy. I'm more a child of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are. I would say, of all the people I know, you are truly California. I am so totally, like, for sure, Californian. Yeah. Can you Im- Im- uh, imitate the Californians from SNL? Like, take the 405 to the 10. <laughs> take the 5 to the 405 to the 10 yeah. to the 91. It's funny. No Cut one across. else does that. We take a canyon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You take your skateboard to your yeah. bike, and then you grab your surfboard, right. and then you go surf, and then you go snowboarding later on. I mean, I, I've always admired Keeper, even in the early days when I was first first met Kenny, of, of the organizations I aspired to be as uh, well-known as in terms of branding and recognition. Because and, you, you, what I looked at and I saw Keeper, I saw really just more than just a, hey, we're a charity, but we're a brand. And then a lot of nonprofits don't get that. That you you still need to be a brand that people resonate with. And I really, I, I took a lot of cues. You know, gr- good artists copy, great artists steal. And you we guys, ripped you off entirely. We ripped everything <laughs> off entirely, even our wristbands. So, oh, thank you. But I want to go back to the origins of, of why this exists. And I think your background as an artist and and uh, um, you know we are the least likely nonprofit people. I like to call it that. You know, who'd have yeah. thought we would have become two guys, you know, like that with no background in charity <laughs> would start a charity, you know. Um, but you uh, you were personally touched by breast cancer, correct? Correct. I had a friend who, that was the beginning of Cuba Breast, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her name was Margaret Kilgallen, and she was a really well-known artist within the street art and action sports community. And... You knew her from school? No, I knew her. I was working in the action sports industry as a clothing designer, so I was designing denim for all the skateboard Uh kids out there. (laughs) I'm pretty much responsible for all the skinny jeans that little boys wear. Oh, boy. Life pre-jeggings. And now now you personally touch breast cancer. Um, I do. As part of your mission. I'm very personally involved in what we do. I mean, that's rare that, like, someone's friend gets cancer and that friend starts the charity it's usually like the the survivor that's st- or the parents that start the charity yeah and i mean i never intended to start a charity i just was doing one event to help one friend right and since i was so involved with the art community we all wanted to get together to do something to raise money and support her and so it just completely was organic natural it was the growth of keep abreast is really due to the response we've had from people and then the need there's no one else out there like us so we're needed we're called we go right and and in the early days in 2000 there was no internet you know in the same way we have it now how how did you build sort of that mass market appeal How, how did everything get started with nothing to give you the boosts that we enjoy today and take for granted Well, I started, like you were talking a little bit, as a brand. And so with my background being in fashion and branding, I obviously wanted to create something that was cool. So it was important to me if I was going to get a message to young people that I had to do it authentically. I had to do it my way. And I had to use art and fashion to kind of get that message to that audience. So I really just designed a cool brand and took that philosophy and applied it to a good cause. It never even occurred to me until so many years later that I was doing, you know, real charity work, starting a nonprofit organization. Right. So how did the mission evolve? Over the years? Yeah. Well, we're in our 15th birthday. Yes. And um, our mission has evolved, but... In a sense, you know, we've always been focused on prevention. Right. So in the beginning days, everyone was, you know, only talking about 
these large pink ribbon organizations that exist and was I raising money for them and right. was I, you know, into drug research? And I was like, well, not really. You know, I'm into educating young people about cancer prevention. And, and I was just completely weird at the time. Like nobody just really got it. And right. then, so over the years, about four years ago, I started, our mission changed in a sense of we broadened our education materials around the toxic conversation right right so all right so i i've always taken umbrage with the word prevention it's just a thing that i hate that word i know it's a tough one for because we're so used to thinking that that's like the answer is you can prevent and i'm on the record i don't know if i said this on the last time on the show but the, i believe and and mallory might question me on this that the only thing truly preventable is pet ownership that's not preventable. <laughs> That's a good one. That's that not nothing is truly preventable and that this it's not terribly sexy to say risk reduction. Right. You know. So how does one prevent cancer when you're a young person? Well, we say risk reduction and we also say lower your risk. Right. So with the different educational things that we do, our traveling education booth is our main program. Right. We talk to young people about things that they can do that will lower their risk, which is, first of all, knowing their risk, right? right. Like, do they have a family history? What is their risk? And then right. what are their exposures in their everyday life? And are there things they can do that will ultimately lower their risk? Because if you are going to get cancer, you're going to get cancer right. in your life. And so it's not really this proven preventable thing, but with early detection, you can make your situation a lot less serious. Right. And I mean, the biggest challenge that I've seen for younger people, our generation and, and younger, is that if we do identify something, a little bump here or something that just doesn't, we know our body's best kind of thing, we're at the mercy of primary care. Yeah. And we have to hope that that doctor we see at the walk-in clinic, or hopefully we have a primary care thanks to Affordable Care Act, if we have 19 million people now have insurance, most of them are millennials. You know, hopefully we're going to see a doctor that says, you know what, don't come back in nine months. Let's take a look at that now, especially breast cancer. Exactly. And that's something where we talk to young women all the time. And if you do feel something, so it's all about knowing your body. Right. And we're not in that like scare tactic kind of way. You know, we want to teach young women to know their body, love their body, come at this from a place of love and awareness for yourself mm -hmm. and that you're just doing your monthly thing. It doesn't have to be so regimented. It's not this like clinical thing. You're not checking for cancer. You're just checking yourself out. But one of the things I really envied about you, you were like first to market with an app. Let's talk about your app. I, I think it's extraordinary. Thank you. Our app, there has, there is other apps out there and, but we really were first to market with the, Check Yourself app directed towards a youth audience. For self-exam. For self-exam. Mm -hmm. So the app is um, it's called Check Yourself. It's in the Android and Apple Store. And we really wanted to have, you know, young people are on their phones all the time anyway. So we wanted to have a way to communicate directly with them in the palm of their own hand. So we created the app and we felt that it was really important that it set this automatic reminder. So as soon as you open it, you can set a reminder, the date, the time, every month that you want to do your self-check. And then, it, you know, it gives you tips on what to do. And then it shows you how to do your self-check. And it's a really simple app. We want something super simple, super easy. It's one thing. Are you able to track how many people have it and then if it's working? Yeah, we are. So there's um, a lot of new, the iTunes store has changed and you're able to get more information now about who's using the app. So we have been able to track globally because it's also the app is available in Japanese, in Spanish, in French, and in Span and in English. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know my own language. You're English, too advanced for us. Japanese, Spanish, and French. Right. So we're able to see in um, all these countries where the app is being downloaded and um, the use. So that's really exciting. No, it's very exciting. We need like one for testicular cancer. 
That would so, be amazing. So get on that. That's the, I, I'm the boob girl. Keep, no, keep a ball. <laughs> so the the keep a ball. All the testicular cancer <laughs> yeah. organizations they can do that. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> again, what I, what I really find profound about keep a breast is that it's constantly adapting. It's constantly learning and adapting, and the the thing that you guys do for women that already have cancer or have had evolved out of this need from prevention too. I want to talk about the castings because it's just so unique. Thank you. Well, the breast casting was the very beginning of Keep a Breast, and I was producing art shows at the time, and that was when I created the idea of casting breasts, having artists paint them, and displaying them. So it was just this natural thing, have all your girlfriends come over, take off their clothes, plaster everyone up, <laughs> and it's just a girl party. Right. But it really evolved. Um, I mean, I've done over, I've casted over 1,500 women. We've had exhibitions with the most famous artists in the world, all over the world, in public spaces, in museums, and galleries, and coffee shops. Like, in a, we have one in a prison right now in Whoa. France. Wow. Um, so we really have had these casts in many, many places all over the world, and there's such a beautiful way to communicate what Keep Abreast is all about. It's incredible. And now you've pivoted even more by going one step further into the risk reduction world by taking on the chemical industry in a sense. One of my <laughs> pet peeves of the universe is the corporate abuse of social goodwill by mislabeling products and not using, um, I guess what could be called uh, non-hazardous for human safety ingredients in some of your products. Let's talk about the non-toxic revolution. It's, it is true that it's this, it's an overwhelming thing. And being here in New York the last week, I feel like, you know, I'm really inundated with like farm fresh, like organic this and 100% natural that. It's like, <laughs> it's really in your face here more in the we're city really trying. than I've ever seen. <laughs> I was somewhere today and they said they were catching their tuna on fishing poles. Right. And I'm like, are you really? <laughs> Come on. With their bare hands. It can't be <laughs> true. But I was, you know, being in this cancer community obviously i'm learning as i'm growing because i don't have a science background i'm not a nurse i'm an artist so i'm responsible to learn as much as i can from experts to help see and what's important information for my audience and i started learning a lot about the chemicals that are linked to cancer and reading lots of studies and struggling with all the information and that's when i was just like okay yeah this is this is too 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 messed up i need to somehow figure out how to take all this data and take it into like tiny bite-sized actionable information for young people yeah i i was involved uh, early on i think it was omg 2011 our annual conference that we first brought environment into the mix of the agenda and so i important. met a woman named Lindsay Dahl who at the time ran a group called safer chemicals healthy families which is the stupid cancer of the chemical world they are yeah. the, this umbrella of of hundreds of other nonprofits and uh, professional societies and, and academic institutions that are rallying around this idea that most chemicals used in industry are not regulated it's not to say that they all are bad but we have the right to know which ones can do this, that, and the other thing, so that when we buy our sofas and our raincoats and our whatnot, it's not filled with, like, leaky parabens that leaks into our X, Y, and Z, and that our kids are crawling around the carpets that are being, you know, whatever, whatever. So I, I was part of the original Frank Lautenberg uh, after he passed away. They're trying to pass a bill called TOSCA. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with TOSCA? Yes, of course. All right, so tell me about your involvement with TOSCA. I've been working a little bit with the team at EWG on that and really just being the younger voice for the environmental working group. So we work with Renee Sharp, their scientists there on a regular basis, and they are so wonderful. We do several projects with them. So whenever any of the new information is coming up around that, Renee always gives it to us so we can pass it to our audience. Right, and the solution for that is really legislation. You know, there's really no yelling at Monsanto or, you know, Dow Chemical or whomever, or the, the you know, they have this thing called the American Chemistry Council, right? which is that movie, Thank You for Smoking, it's those people, mm -hmm. basically, that are telling us that corn syrup is good for you, and that the parabens and your BPA-free, you know, hormone growth, bovine stuff is, you know, whatever. 
and and it's really profit driven and and there's no real need for this and the consumer voice hasn't yet made that big of a dent in getting congress to act so there's a new tosca bill out there which has apparently got enough votes to be bipartisan but it's still kind of crappy yeah. and if there's one thing the universe can do is to get enough people to sign a petition that doesn't exist right now for the vote next year that this needs to be put in because some like 80,000 chemicals in commerce and only 2% have been FDA tested for human safety. Yeah. That's 79,000. I can't do math. It's bad <laughs> math. Really bad math. Yeah, and yeah. it's the combination of how the, all those chemicals are used, right? So it's all these small exposures over a that longer period of right. time that are making our risks higher. That babies are born with mercury in them. Exactly. That's like not okay. <laughs> We're working on a survey right now with the Breast Cancer Fund, and right. it will be we'll be putting it out on the Vans Warped Tour. So it's really our opportunity to survey this teenage audience across the country about their knowledge around this subject. Right, and you, you hit on the, my last topic here is you know in addition to not toxic revolution and the castings and the prevention, you have a, a formidable grasp on the teen, youth, tween ish you know gen z as they say movement by going to warp tour and and i think it's fascinating kenny had his first taste of warp tour last year it was exhausting and he didn't know any of the bands um i knew some of the bands (laughs) but i listened to most of the bands i don't know right going back to that study of uh it's awesome yeah but it goes the energy at that place is it's crazy i saw the videos it's amazing you know what does a 14 year old do when their parents come with a pocket full of money they go to the Keep a breast tent, yeah, and they, you know, do, go to the mosh pit and listen to bands for four days. Exactly, it's a wonderful, wonderful environment, and it is really our largest opportunity to educate face to face. Right, and to us, that's so important because it shows authenticity. We build trust directly with our core audience. So, if I was standing there in like a nurse's outfit at like a Red Cross table, like I'm not going to make a difference with that audience at all. But if I'm there in my like cool tent with my cool stuff and my education looks great and I have an app and if you download it, you can win a free shopping spree. Like, okay, cool. I can reach you. I can kind of get in you and help educate you about a long-term healthier life. Right. And again, what what is continually fascinating is that we keep getting older and they stay the same age and yet we're <laughs> trying change. to st- <laughs> <laughs> they grow too there's just always new they just keep yeah. coming every year new and, young ones new young ones but and- you're relevant and that's the point like you're not 18 you're not 14 you know and keep abreast is this relevant brand to millennials and not even millennials to the gen zers out there the 14 year olds out there and and it's a testament to i think what you you know to be true a brand marketing to a crowd of 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 stakeholders on their terms. It's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And being authentic and, and not selling out and partnering, you know, with other brands and other organizations that actually mean something to them. Like the kids that we work with or teens, you know, they think it's cool that we partner with you. Right. They think it's cool that we work, you know, with skateboard brands and musicians. And since we have been on the Vans Warped Tour for 15 years, I mean, yes. that's just our home base. And yeah. Kevin Lyman created a beautiful environment, the founder of the Vans Warped tour that completely fosters community right. and nonprofit like contribution collaboration everyone working together and the bands it's just this great way to connect on such a deeper level and we've built so many long-term relationships with musicians and sponsors through that opportunity and again like it's it's a really an evolved package of products that keep abreast has become and I really look at that as an example of how nonprofits can take lead to understand their audience and to continue to iterate everything they do to offer value. And and I give you complete props for hey, you're still there. Thank Not, you. They, we're, we're in the unique club of nonprofit founders, <laughs> still there. you know, that are still around. <laughs> it's cool. We're still there. We still have so much support. We're growing globally, which right. is also really exciting. And like we've done all of this like DIY, right? All of it like. DIY, our own way, like punk rock style. And so just now, after 15 years, we're like, oh, maybe we should think about like how nonprofits actually like get funding. Yes. <laughs> maybe we should try to get a grant. Like maybe, we, you know, so it's an You've exciting time. You've been the anti-nonprofit. Time. Yeah, for yeah. us to, and to grow worked. and create sustainability, really. 
Well, we're celebrating the 15th Woo. anniversary of the Keep Abreast Foundation. Happy birthday. And I couldn't be happier to have uh, founder Shaney Joe Darden here with us on the air right now. Shaney, thank you so much for joining us. You're sticking around. Thanks for on having mic. me. And so, live uh, in studio. Live in studio with, with real real applause. Woo. These are real people in the audience right now. They're real people. Kenny has like 25 dancing <laughs> Shiva arms. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, hit up the news here. Kenny. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. A uh, couple of meetups happening in New York City, Cody, Wyoming, St. Anthony, Minnesota. Very if you'd nice. like to learn more about hosting your own meetup, visit stupidcancer.org forward slash meetup. Cancer is lonely. We got the cure for that. We're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile messaging app that brings anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Now available for download for iOS and Google Play. Uh, visit instapeer.org or just search for Instapeer in your app store. All right. We launched News Aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed cancer is expensive so we're proud to announce cancer made me broke.com a national partnership with give forward the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser you didn't ask to get sick and your community wants to help you visit cancer made me broke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today all right it's always and i mean always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and be proud. Wear stupid cancer, and that is your stupid, stupid cancer, cancer news. On the program tonight, we're going to welcome Kimberly Jewett, two-time breast cancer survivor, a passionate patient advocate, and the CEO and founder of her own consulting firm in Chicago. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show the one and only Kim Jewett. Kim. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I'm uh, really excited. I almost feel apologetic, almost, that I've never had you on the show. I'm kidding. I, I really do. Uh, you are a really special person. You've been involved in the community for so long. We go back a very long time. I think I first met you when you were um, working for, like, was it My Lifeline or something? Yeah, I was working for My Lifeline. I believe that was back in 2009 following my initial diagnosis in 2008. So it's it, we've been through a long time together, Matt. Yes, we've really truly seen each other grow and blossom like a flower in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, let's then uh, trace that cord back to the wall. 2008, diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time. What was your life like? You, 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 I, I would presume just living, living every day, having a great time, no worries whatsoever. Yeah, so 2008, you know, I actually had just um, been the caregiver to my mom. Um, she had brain cancer. Uh, at the time, my kids were six and four when I received my diagnosis. Uh, it was a challenging time, needless to say, with my mom coming out of treatment and thinking, oh, my gosh, could this be really happening? Am I going to be diagnosed now with cancer at the young age of 31? Um, I think my first and foremost concern was my children, being that they were so young. I think I had that moment of would I be there to raise them. Um, I think the journey uh, in which you find out, you know, what your treatment's going to be in terms of mastectomies and chemotherapy, that was something really new to navigate. But, you know, we did it. Uh, I think the, the looking back, you know, having to sit down with the kids and explain to them that I was going to have to go through treatment, I was going to have to lose my hair, you know, those are things that you fear because you don't know how to explain it to your children. Um, but we got through it. You know, I often, you know, would speak to them about, you know, we were going to overcome cancer without, you know, letting it define us. We wanted it to inspire us. And, and that's kind of been the message as I have went through, you know, the process. And, and that's really kind of what led me, even with my, you know, doing my work with my lifeline is, you know, how can I make a difference 
with my story and being diagnosed, you know, with cancer and helping others. So let's get a little more granular on that diagnosis. Um, where were you treated? You know, I was, I was actually diagnosed locally at my community hospital. When they officially uh, diagnosed me and said that I had breast cancer, I decided to go to the Internet and do some research. Always Upon helps. Finding, go ahead. It always helps to go to the Internet. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I really found that locally there was a great oncologist, Dr. Olapati, who actually specialized in young women in breast cancer, and she was actually out of University of Chicago. So I actually decided to move my care over there, and I met with a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon and um, decided to really move forward with the treatment regimen there. And, and I was really pleased. I mean, they, they treated me really aggressively, and you know, I felt like I was in good hands just because they had specialized, like I said, with young women in breast cancer. Well, and that's exciting, too, because, you know, this is 2008, and young adult wasn't really a word back then in cancer. So it must have been, I mean, maybe you didn't know any better, but the fact that you had somebody who understood that you weren't 80, I'm sure came in handy. Absolutely, and I, I think that's probably the biggest message that I want to send out is I, I really became my own advocate, right? I, I was really forced to, much like you were, Matt, right? I mean, you, you hear those words at such a young age, and you think, okay, now how do I advocate for myself? How do I make sure that the doctor I'm seeing understands the needs specifically to somebody who's, who's young, right? Um, you know, another big piece that, you know, looking back was the, the fertility piece for me, right? Um, I had two children. I was grateful. I was blessed that I had them, but I was not done having children. So that became another obstacle for me and, and reality of I wasn't going to be able to have any more children. I mean, I certainly could have went through the egg retrieval process, but back then that wasn't as much of a priority as it is now. I think we've come such a long way in terms of fertility preservation for patients and patients are starting to become better educated on options that are available so that they can someday, if they decide to have children, explore those options. Was that option even brought up to you in 2008 or was that something you just happened to think of in general? Truthfully, it really wasn't. I think it was so focused around the, the treatment, right, and how do we get treatment to this young woman. And I think there was probably some perspective of, wow, she already has kids, so we're just going to kind of glaze over it. Um, right. I'll tell you, there was a moment that I went down and I sat with my OBGYN, and I just finished chemotherapy, and I was struggling. I think at that moment, you're going through treatment, and you're thinking, I, I just got to fight through this, right? I I'm not even going to look at the kid piece, but right. after I got through chemotherapy, I went and sat down with my OBGYN and I said, listen, I'm struggling here. You know, if I had not had cancer, I know I would have had more children. And he looked at me at one point and he said, go get a puppy. Wow. <laughs> Wait, hey, uh, let's take a moment and digest that one. Go get yeah, a puppy. Go get, go get a puppy. Wow. Go get a puppy was his response. That's uh, bedside yeah. manner at its finest. Yeah, so, I mean, it was hard, and, you know, I did get a puppy. Um, <laughs> it helped some. But, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting to think that, that, hey, in perspective, I had my life. But I think it just really showed that we really needed to, to focus in on the needs of young adults and, and what they go, go through in terms of childbearing, right? Right, and that is the entire point of this show and our movement is that we're not any more special than the 90-year-old with breast cancer. We're just different, like we have eggs. Yeah. You know, things like yeah. that. So how old were your two children when you were diagnosed at 31? Um, my daughter was six and my son was four. Well, I mean, I have two six-year-olds now. They're hard enough to deal with and I'm well. How does one navigate parenting with children so young? Uh, it, it's hard. I mean, nobody gives you a book on parenting, right, in general. There's no book. I always say, God, please, why hasn't somebody created one on how to parent? <laughs> <laughs> right? Let alone. Exactly. Um, but it was something I had to navigate. You know, I'll tell you the, the one book that stands out in my mind that really helped me was Julie Clark's book, You Are the Med Best Medicine. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that book really helped me to sit down with my kids and read because at that age, right, everything's about reading books at night and connecting with your kids and you want to give them age appropriate information. And so I was able to sit down when I, you know, had moments of not being so sick and tired and, and really sit down and explain it to, as much as I could. Um, I think the key for them was when I lost my hair. I mean, that was, sure. the, it was more of an image to them about mommy is sick and she looks different. 
Um, but we got over it quickly. You know, they, they navigated it pretty well. And then, um, so time passes, you're pronounced disease-free. Yes. And then all of a sudden, the shit hits the fan again. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I was doing, you know, I was doing great. I had no evidence of disease. I um, was actually working for my lifeline at the time, loved what I was doing, felt really, really excited about the growth that was happening. And then in 2012, I remember having some achiness, you know, in my left rib, and I had called my, you know, oncologist and had shared that this pain was not usual for me, and I really wanted to further, you know, do a workup on it, and so we did. Um, the long and short of it was it came back that that area was fine, but I had a, a recurrence deep in my chest wall. Um, so clearly, um, I had to go back to University of Chicago and, and get a biopsy and, and find out that it was cancer. And at that point, they recommended that I do more surgery to remove the, the chest wall mass, a portion of my chest wall, and then actually remove the implant because I was going to have to have radiation. So I did that. I came home. And during that recovery time, I was really fortunate just for the work that I do in this space that I knew a doctor from MD Anderson Cancer Center. And he had said, you know, I'd love for you to come here and have a second opinion. And I thought, gosh, you know, I feel fine. Surgery went great. Everything seemed to be really local, regional. I think I'm okay. And he said, no, I think you should come out. I'll fast track you to the system, and we'll just get a second set of eyes on you. And so two weeks following my surgery, I went out to MD Anderson, and they did their own workup, and needless to say, they found more cancer. Wow. And so, it, yeah, you know, I'll tell you, Matt, when I sat in that room and, and they did another biopsy, and within 10 minutes I heard, again, you have cancer, I thought to myself, how could this be? Mm-hmm. I just had surgery. I thought they took all of the cancer. And the first thought I had in my mind was, how was I going to go home? and face my children, who were then 10 and 8. How was I going to go home and say, I have cancer again, right? I had just left them. I told them I was going there for just a second opinion, just to think of what medicine I was going to take. And I really ultimately ultimately felt like I lied to them. I was going to have to go home and say I had cancer again. And certainly probably the biggest emotion I had was fear of, was I going to die? Was I going to be there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really did rock my world. So uh, the the it's not really ironic, but it's the sense that you had cancer, became active in the cancer community, working for a cancer advocacy organization. We can discuss my lifeline in a second, and then became a customer again of the very system you'd learned all about and then happen to take advantage of an opportunity that you may not have had if you were not in that position by going to MD Anderson. Correct, correct. I mean, it's it's certainly allowed me to put things into perspective, right? The connections that I had that most people often don't. I think the other piece that I want to acknowledge is, you know, the ability that I could afford to travel to MD Anderson, right? In those situations, a lot of people have to consider that, right? right? And you decide, you know, you're going to seek treatment at a, you know, top 10 center. Can you afford to do the travel? And in my case, I was fortunate that I was in a position to be able to do so. And so at that point, that's when I decided I'm going to continue with my care at MD Anderson. I was no longer going to go back to University of Chicago. We knew that this was a really big game changer. The disease was clearly acting more aggressively than we had anticipated. And so I continued with my treatment at MD Anderson in all of 2012. I underwent more surgery. I was on a stage four um, chemotherapy drug that I had taken, and then I did some radiation as well. Now, along the way, you were remote at MD Anderson while you were going through this for how long? So 2012, I actually, I lived here in Chicago, and I would just commute back and forth to Houston as needed. So I, you know, initially I took a stage four chemotherapy drug that I did locally, but I would fly back and forth for assessments, right? I would do kind of a PET scan there, blood work, check in with the oncologist, and then he'd send me back and say, here, we're going to do a few more rounds. Then I'd fly back again and get reexamined. Then I did some more surgery, and then I actually did my radiation locally just because of the kid piece, right? I mean, sure. that was another big factor for me that 
I wasn't just a single person that can go and live there. I mean, in a perfect world, I think MD Anderson would have loved that. Right. But I was not in a position to be able to do that. I wanted to keep my kids' life as normal as possible. And, and the truth of the matter is the kids really struggled that time. I mean, they were able at that age to understand the difference between life and death. And so they certainly had a great deal of anxiety about, is mom going to be okay? It wasn't as you know, like it was when they were six and four. They didn't really understand. At this point, they did, and they certainly needed me to be here and give them that security. So I tried to do my best on making a good balance in terms of my treatment. So let's talk about your support network during all these years. Friends, family, I understand you were married at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, I had a great support system in terms of my family, my friends, my community, um, I, I feel very grateful and blessed for that. But, you know, I was married. I think it was something that was very challenging for my um, soon-to-be ex-husband to deal with at the time. Um, you go through cancer once, they say it's hard, right? But the second time, I think, was it was that much harder. And I think in situations like that, they say, you know, there's a phrase, your marriage can make it or break it, right? And in my situation, I think it just broke. I think there was a lot... Um, of things swirling around. I think it's hard enough to be married with young kids and travel and all the things that life throws at you, but then you throw on two cancer diagnoses um, and it makes it even harder. So, you know, I made a really difficult decision. Once I came out of cancer treatment in 2012, 2013 was a lot of going back and scanning every three months, making sure that we were staying ahead of the disease. And there was still a lot of uncertainty Um, 2014, I felt like I could come out of that and make some decisions that were a little bit more clear. And I think we kind of sat down and thought, this is the right decision. I think it's time that we divorce and we part ways. And I'll tell you, Matt, it was one of the hardest decisions to make. But, um, you know, you you go through cancer and and you think you can't overcome it, but you do. And and as I start to recognize this journey, of, you know, cancer and divorce, it's, it's happening. And it's, it's not easy to navigate, but I want to be able to be that voice of inspiration for somebody else to let them know that you can come out of it, right, just like you do a diagnosis. Um, but most importantly, you can absolutely find love again, and you can be happy again. And uh, we've done several broadcasts on divorce and, and um, even bereavement after divorce and, and the strange ways that life can just happen with through and beyond uh, how a cancer diagnosis impacts family you know divorces have happened for much less worse reasons than the severity of a medical tragedy so you know taken into context how people get married and unmarried at, at a moment's notice because they just decide you know celebrity marriages last a week michael jackson and lisa marie presley you know, there's a, there can be a certain degree of guilt associated with, oh, my God, did I do this? And did you go through that process? Did your husband go through that process? Because what I've learned, and thankfully I'm, I, I'm, I'm married and, and happily married now, and, and I was not married when I was sick, but, you know, the, the stressors that go into this truly do make or, or break that marriage. But this sense of being okay that it did happen and coming to peace and not letting the rest of the world or believe that the rest of the world is judging you for this having had happened. How have you been able to reconcile that and gain peace? You know, I don't think you do. I think, I I think that you always look back and, and see and, and really try to think, did I do everything right? Did we give it our best? Right. Um, But at the end of the day, was it the cancer that broke it? Was it the fact that we had all these life stressors? We don't have those exact answers. I think it's just a matter of how, how do we navigate moving forward? How do we push forward and be the best parents that we can be for our children um, without having so much guilt? I mean, it's just part of grieving, right? It's, they say when you go through divorce, it's, it's similar to a death. You have to grieve it. You, it's right. like a tossed salad, as my psychologist would explain, right? You have all those emotions that come up, the anger, the guilt, the, the shame, all of those pieces. Um, and you just have to go through it and process it. And it's, it is not easy, but again, you know, you, you, I tend to look at it and think, um, I just want to be able to share that experience and inspire somebody else and know that you can get through it because there's much worse things that can happen, right? 
So here we are in uh, May of 2015, and uh, how is your health currently? I have no evidence of disease right now. I'm actually going to see my oncologist tomorrow for my uh, follow-up appointment, and I'm anticipating to hear good news. But as of now, I have no evidence of disease. I feel great, and life is good. And how old are your children these days? My daughter is now 13, and my son is 11. And how are they faring? They're great. You know, I'll tell you, my daughter still struggles. You know, she has anxiety. I think that, you know, when we go around scan time and having to go to the doctor, that fear comes up. The uncertainty of, is it going to come back? But we we navigate it, right? Again, I teach them. uh, We don't let cancer define us. We try to let it inspire us and try to make a difference. And they've certainly had to learn at a very young age how to overcome adversity. And now, I mean, let, let's take the next uh, part of the segment here to, to switch over to what you're doing today. What, I, what I've always found most interesting is when the patient becomes the advocate, but then the advocate gets to have their voice heard by what I call the other side. And that would be the medical side, the pharmaceutical side, the sales side of things. And, and you've become not just an advocate uh, for young adults and for our cause. And by the way, sidebar, I heard you speak at the uh, YSC Summit uh, this year. You did an extraordinary job rallying the troops, your, your story, of course, your presentation skills. But now you're working for, one might say, you know, the devil, the pharma companies, the other side. And... You know, I jokingly love them and have a great relationship with them when they decide to cooperate. But I, I always love to hear the perspective of the patient turned advocate who is now being able to not just become a voice for the people that whose lives could be made better, but you get to actually educate the other side and let them know what they're missing out on. Yeah, no, you know, I'll tell you when I decided to launch my business and and really partner with pharma, I think I knew that there was a powerful message that needed to be sent. And that was purely out of my own passion and my purpose is how to, you know, leverage my experience and my skill set professionally to educate the marketing people and the advocacy people on everything that they're doing in terms of patients, right? Making sure that their messaging is clear, making sure that their campaigns and initiatives are And even in terms of digging deeper with advocacy, making sure that they're really funding the right programs within these advocacy groups. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I was able to not only, you know, work with my Lifeline or Cancer 101 or some of these other smaller ones and really kind of bridge that gap. But that's what I want to continue to do is make sure that the work I do is centric for patients. And and, and again, it comes down to educating them. Right, and you, and it's the role almost becomes like a defender too. I mean, I, I was, I was hearkening before, like the evil side or the dark side. These are people that have families. These are people who get cancer. Also, they're not hiding a cure in a vault somewhere in some CEO's office. And the the humanization, if that's a word I can use, of who these people are on that side that they really do authentically want to help. They're up against the bureaucracy sometimes, but at the end of the day, they really are passionate people who do what they do, not for the paycheck, because they know they can get involved to make a difference. Has that been your assessment as well? Absolutely. You know, I often, you know, when I get on the phone and I'm talking to a new client, you know, one of the first things I say is how grateful I am to be able to collaborate with amazing people, because we've all been touched by cancer in one form or another, right? And they truly want to do the right things. And uh, you're right, Matt. It just comes down to sometimes the, the, the legalities within the organization that they're sometimes tied to. But at the end of the day, they do want to do what's best for patients. And they're always willing to listen. And, and that's part of the, the mission and goal of Kimberly Jewett Consulting is to be that bridge. So I see here you've done some work on the Hill. Um, can you talk more to how you've been, uh, you, you spoke to the FDA. I actually might be speaking to the FDA later this year, and I have beef with them, of course, as most people do. But what, what's what been your experience with that? You know, I'll tell you, I was actually, it was for Avastin, when Avastin was coming off um, indication for metastatic breast cancer. And at that point, I felt really strongly about the decision coming down to you know, the patient and the physician, and unfortunately, you know, the FDA didn't hear it or see it that way. But 
uh, I, I felt it was important for me to go and advocate for my, my belief and to be that voice for patients that maybe don't have one today. And I was empowered by it, right? I felt um, it was my, you know, my inspiring story to share. And um, I think it's important for people to learn about how they can leverage their story and, most importantly, their voice. It doesn't always mean that the FDA is going to listen, but that's just part of uh, one piece of the puzzle in in terms of advocating, right, what you believe and and really making a difference. Because a lot of people don't have it in them to, to let their voice be heard. So... I am one of those people like you, Matt, that I want to scream loud and clear. And so if I can continue to use that voice, I think it, it ends up you know, becoming very powerful. One of the interesting lessons that, um, that I learned by doing some lobbying on the Hill is that one person's story can sway a vote. That you can get like 5 million people to sign a petition, but they won't pay attention unless one person's story matters to the person they're talking to. And... To me, that means, well, why do petitions? I guess they kind of help augment. But it is right. You are, if one person, one voice, one issue can make or break anything. Absolutely. All right, so we got about uh, two minutes left here in the segment. What is your, I mean, you were very articulate before about being your own advocate, but to the, to the, to the frightened you, the next Kim diagnosed with cancer with children, alone, afraid, What's your message to that person? If you could be in front of that person right now, what would you say to them? I would say just don't give up, right? Don't lose sight of, you know, the strength that you have. You know, those words always come to my mind and strength and hope and, you know, believing. And um, uh, I'll give you an example. I had uh, my medical oncologist who had said, you know, here are three pieces of advice that I could give you to overcome the fear and the uncertainty and the lack of control that you might feel as you go through this journey. He said, number one, I want you to have faith. I'm a medical doctor. I do everything in my power medically, but the man above has the final say. Number two, have hope. There are new drugs coming to market every day. And number three, go home and have a glass of champagne and live every day to the fullest. And I live by those words every day. I, as I continue to navigate this, you know, uncertainty and fear that pops in, I remember those three pieces of advice. And I hope that people can take those words and really apply it to where they're at, no matter where they're at in their process. If they're in treatment, if they're facing a new recurrence, or if they've just finished, to help them overcome the fear and the uncertainty that this diagnosis can bring. And I just have to tie up this conversation with one really special thing that you know you are very unique and you're very inspiring but you've undertaken a very small grassroots project that i'm just so proud of it just speaks to your character it's called thoughtful thursdays and from what i understand this grassroots project uh you're engaging school children or maybe your own children perhaps in um creating and distributing blankets to give to cancer patients can you just tell us about a bit about that to wrap up the uh, segment Sure, sure. So when I went through treatment the second time, it was through the summer, and I really wanted something for my kids to to focus on, something that would kind of take away from the sickness that I was going through, and really ultimately how to be thoughtful and caring of others. And so one of the projects that we did was making fleece-tied blankets. Um, We made a blanket. We ended up giving it to a woman at the cancer center who ultimately ended up passing away with the blanket on her. And as sad as it was to hear that she died, you know, with that day with the blanket, it was a, it was, we were able to recognize the support and the comfort that we provided not only that woman, but her family and her final hours. And so as that story started to spread within our community, everybody started to reach out and say, oh my gosh, what can we do to help? And so three years ago, we decided to continue to, to do that project within our community, within the school, and it's continued to spread into different school systems. And actually, on Thursday, we're going to Northwestern Children's, and we're donating all the blankets to the Children's Oncology Unit. And I'm really proud to see that, con- that, you know, that project grow, and it's a great way for the kids to get involved and, most importantly, the community. It's, a lot, it's about really giving back and thinking about others. Well, if that doesn't speak to your character, I don't know what does. Kimberly Jewett, two-time breast cancer survivor, clearly a very passionate patient advocate, rallying of the troops, fighting for our rights, the CEO and founder of Kimberly Jew Consulting. Uh, go kiss those beautiful children for me, and you take care of yourself. Thank you for joining us on Thanks. the show. 
Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. Kim Jewett, everyone. All right, Kenny. Guys, that's our show. A great show. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, the 348th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Shaney, Joe Darden from the Keep a Breast Foundation, and Kim Jewett. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. If you haven't already, visit stupidcancershow.org and never miss an episode by signing up for our newsletter and subscribing to the show on its free podcast with SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Blog Talk Radio. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of myself, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Shapiro, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next broadcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Take care.